classes. Church, I'm really excited for this teaching this morning. We're going to be in two different, excuse me, got a little... Get some water. By the way, this is the most amazing mug. Uh, this is from the Brentwood Congregational Church, and they left a bunch of these. They had a bunch of these printed and made um, years ago. And, and on the back, you can just walk around and witness to this. It just, says, it just says, fill your cup with Christ. And so that's, that's a little sermon. You should walk in coffee sermon everywhere you go. You just, you know, they're great. I think we're going to have... Erica, the idea of having some new ones made for, for Christchurch with the same, just put our logo on there and have the same, yeah. What do you think? Would you use it? Capital campaign. Cap, yeah. Capital campaign to raise funds for these mugs, yeah. Yeah. What are you guys raising funds for? Coffee mugs? Um, so we're going to be in Romans 5, 1 through 11, and we're going to be in Luke 1, 39 to 56. Let me explain why? Here's, here's where I want to go with this teaching and why we're going to be looking at two separate passages. Um, one of them is sort of Christian joy defined, okay? That's, that's Romans 5, Christian joy defined. And the reason we say Christian joy is because we're making a distinction between Christian joy and maybe worldly happiness, and we're, we're going to get into what that is. But that's sort of a biblical and theological justification for our joy in Romans 5, 1 through 11. And then we're going to look to Luke 1, as this is an Advent series, to see Christian joy experienced in the context of community. And so more specifically, what that looks like, this illustration of joy seen in the scriptures as we see uh, as we see the, the story given uh, in Luke 1 of, of Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah. So we're going to begin with, with Christian joy defined in Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read it for us. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, 
shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's the reading of God's word. Referring to this passage, John Stott, who was a giant of the faith and English Anglican theologian wrote, it seems clear from this paragraph that the main mark of justified believers is joy. Do you hear that? The main mark of justified believers is joy. Where would he glean this from? Why would he say this? Well, if you read the first verse and then half of the second verse, you read about our salvation through faith in Jesus. And the second half of verse 2 describes the response. Rejoice. That we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The rejoicing was a result of the fact that salvation had been secured by Jesus. Every religion says, every other religion says, live as you should and God will accept you. Christianity says you receive God's acceptance and blessing as a free gift of faith on the basis of Jesus' record, not your own record. And then you are empowered by the glories of the gospel to live in God-honoring ways. And so this is the great news. We all would agree this is great news because we do not feel as though we honor God with our lives consistently. And it would lead us to agree with John Stott when he says the main mark of justified believers is joy, or at least should be joy. We have much to be joyful for. In a sermon Tim Keller gave in 2008 on joy, he references studies that have been done on happiness. And he actually references uh, a New York Times essay written by Amy Bloom called The Rap on Happiness. And Keller abbreviates the quote from the end of the article, and it says this, The real problem with happiness is neither its pursuers nor their books... It's happiness itself. Happiness is like beauty. Part of its glory lies in its transience. It is deep but often brief, as Frost would have it. And much great prose and poetry make note of this. Frank Kermode wrote, It seems there is a sort of calamity built into the texture of life. To hold happiness is to hold the understanding that the world passes away from us, that the petals fall and the beloved dies. No amount of mockery, no amount of fashionable scowling will keep any of us from knowing and savoring the pleasure of the sun on our faces or save us from the adult understanding that it cannot last forever. What she's saying is this, If you really want serenity in life, don't pursue happiness because anything you get joy from won't last. No, No matter what it is, it will disappoint you. 
The, the only way, this is what she is saying, the only way to get serenity is to, to try to not be happy, to, to try to not pursue joy. For some, sports teams are still breaking our hearts. Maybe it's a relationship or a career or success. What happens is because our hearts want joy, our hearts are a big vacuum pump that has an enormous amount of sucking and it fixes itself on something and says, this will really make me happy. But we know it will not last. So then you say, the only way I'll get serenity is to stop pursuing joy. Don't give your heart to anything. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? There's a problem with that. C.S. Lewis said in his book, Four Loves, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. So is there any way forward? If it's not eat, drink, and be merry, because that runs out, but it's also not avoid pleasure, the pursuit of joy and happiness either, then what is it? This is why Christian joy is so unbelievably important, Christian, because it answers that question. Joy is found in love, and for the Christian, love is entirely and completely embodied in the person of Jesus. And this is, number two, the uniqueness of Christian joy. Remember what Paul says in verse 3, we rejoice even in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, it produces perspective, it produces our ability to see our need for God and to see the suffering servant who laid down his life for us. He goes on to say, endurance produces character, character produces hope. You ever wonder why you just simply want to be near people who have endured a lot, who have gone through loss. You feel compelled to be in their presence, especially for a Christ follower who has gone through a lot. They're often the type of people you go, I am better for having been in their presence today. Why? Because their suffering has produced a, a certain character, a humble maturity, a stability that has produced hope in God and his plans, even though his plans were not their plans. And then that hope in God produces a joy, even in the trials. You want to be around those people. Keller says, 
Christian joy, unlike worldly happiness, not only can be maintained when all circumstances go unfavorable, but it can also grow. In fact, it usually does grow. It did for the Apostle Paul. After all that he had endured, he could still write to the Colossian church in his opening chapter, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, Colossians. And so this confronts the idea that joy is possible even when life is not going as hoped. It's unique because it is based on the idea of the already but the not yet. That we get to experience glimpses of total completeness and total joy in this world now, but we also anticipate a day when that becomes a consistent reality. We're not just seeing glimpses of it, but we're experiencing it consistently. It won't come and go. And so what is the only source, number three, for that important and unique joy? Our last point out of this passage. What is the only source for that important and unique joy? The source of Christian joy. Verses 6 through 11. For while we were weak without joy, without hope, we're either trying to get it ourselves or we're burned out, we're hardened to even the idea of joy because we've tried finding it in everything else. The moment where we just want to throw in the towel on actually knowing this sort of joy, right at that time, Christ died for you. What does he mean here when he says the ungodly, that he died for the ungodly? It means right when you were in need, you being one whom didn't have God, meaning didn't have hope, didn't have joy, that's when Christ intervened. Ungodly just means without God. That's when Christ intervened for you to give you hope and to give you joy. The ungodly one. And then when he gives it to you, you become godly in his sight. You become righteous and covered in his sight. You know, I'm a strong believer in the power of words. Written words, spoken words. We cannot be a people who imply. We, we need to be explicit. This week, there were several instances with my kids. Uh, there was a time with my mother-in-law, uh, who is sick again in the hospital, um, a time with my sister-in-law, a time with Rory's parents as they came up on Tuesday to pick up her artwork. When I was able to intervene with words, to speak truth and courage into their ears and their hearts and their minds. I had several people this week do the same with me to speak words of courage and perspective and joy at the right time, right when I needed it the most. And I love the picture given here, at the right time. Right when he knew we needed it the most, while we were still sinners, this is what Paul, church, is celebrating. This is what Paul is delighting in. This is the source of his joy. That up until this point in human history, your standing before a holy God had to do with the law. And now in Christ, all of the promises of God find their yes 
They find their fulfillment in him. Rejoice because he is the source. And at the perfect time, the source of your joy died, gave up his joy so that you might have joy. That is what we rejoice in. Paul is amazed at what Jesus has done. This is why he says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though even for a good person one would dare even ever to die. But he shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, without joy, without him, Christ died for us. Paul is rejoicing in this. He's rejoicing in the idea that not when we get salvation, we please God, but that we get God and then he is pleased to give us salvation. That's what he is celebrating. The cross gives us that access. I, um, a couple of weeks ago when we had our Thanksgiving gathering, I pulled into Costco to pick up all the, the foods and cakes and all the things we ate. And then I picked up some OJ there as well. Anybody ever bought OJ at Costco? You get four of their gallons, like whatever, like in a box. It seems excessive. I don't know who's drinking that much OJ, but I picked it up. thought to myself, we'll at least drink two. Then I was hungry, and so I went to Taco Bell. Uh, I feel like you can't say that publicly, but I did. I went to Taco Bell. It's like, you know, nobody wants to admit they go to McDonald's, but it's like they serve like 16 billion people a day or something. Um, So I did. I pulled into Taco Bell, and as I was in the drive-thru, I don't know why I just laughed about that, but it makes me, it's, yeah, it's Taco Bell. Do you like Taco Bell? I like Taco Bell. Thank you. Thank you. Just give me something here from that, yeah. Like, hey, I do too. You know, that's... Anyways, um, the, the woman um, at the window noticed my OJ in the front seat. And she was like, you can't buy that at Sam's. That's a Costco thing. And I was like, I know. She goes, I haven't got a Costco membership yet. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to drink all this OJ. You want one? And so I opened the box. She said, I do. And which I was totally surprised by. <laughs> And so I gave, her, I gave her an OJ. She gave me my Taco Bell, and then I handed OJ through the window and gave her. So you'll notice, like, we only had three OJs out there. That's because the lady at Taco Bell got one. Um, she looked at me and said, it makes me so happy that you would do that. And I, I left, and I was thinking about it. It's OJ. It's not, it's not a big deal. Three bucks, whatever. But, but the phrasing was unique to me. It makes me so happy that you would do that. The, the OJ was a bonus for her. The joy for her came with having been a recipient of a sacrifice. Does that make sense? That is Paul's posture towards Jesus and his attitude and his perspective on the gospel. His salvation is a bonus. He finds his joy and delight in the sacrifice that Christ made on his behalf. That's where he draws his joy from. I wasn't going to use that illustration, but I'm glad I did because I think it maybe kind of worked. 
Can, can, I, can I ask you, Christian, in, in your heart and mind on a daily basis, what, what is required for your salvation? If, if our salvation is what is to bring us a tremendous sense of joy, we need to identify what you believe is required for that salvation. Because you'll never trust in the source if you believe the requirement is something you can bring to the table. You'll never find joy in the source if you believe the requirement is something you can bring to the table. Is it asking Jesus into your heart? Is it a relationship with him? How would you answer that question? Is it keeping the law and living a good life? The answer to all of those questions is no, a resounding no. It is none of those things. What is required, the only thing required for your salvation is perfection. Perfection. Perfection, you say, is impossible. And Paul the Apostle would agree wholeheartedly, it is impossible and that is why he rejoices, because Christ's perfection made it possible to cover the impossibly high standard of entrance into God's presence, into the presence of a holy God. When you get that, the pressure is off, the delight and the rejoicing is on. Jesus lost all joy so that you could have joy. He experienced death so you, Christian, could have life. So what does it look like briefly here? I just want to take a few minutes to see the story that we're given in Luke chapter 1. If, if that's kind of the, the foundation for our joy, I just want to look at a briefly, just a story here. Let's take a few minutes. Hone in here on the communal aspect of this salvific joy that they're experiencing that stands in the face, the keyword communal here, stands in the face of the idea that we can experience maximum joy detached or disconnected from community with other Christians. In other words, we need covenant community in our lives in order to know the fullness of Christian joy. I believe that deeply that we need covenant community in our lives in order to know the fullness of Christian joy. Let me just read the first few verses here. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is the story of the birth of Jesus being foretold. I want you to track with this because it's important and applies to how we view joy and how we can experience it. The story of Jesus being foretold 
his birth being foretold. That means the, the telling of something that is about to happen. And Mary had been told at this point that the baby she's carrying is, is one whom the Holy Spirit gave her. That's what she's been told before this incident. And that he will be the son of God and the God and the, the, the God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no, no end. All this has been told, <clears throat> if you just back up a few verses, to Mary. It's in verses 26 to 38. And then in verse 39, the picture we're given is sort of the baby shower. It's kind of what we just read. They get together. They gather up to celebrate. Who's there? Mary, Zechariah, Elizabeth, and a couple of holy babies in the wombs of these women. This is an example where we're able to see that rejoicing, church, Christian, joy is most often found in the presence of others. That's how it's experienced. Number one, it's found with others. Mary went to the hill country to find Zechariah and Elizabeth to celebrate, to rejoice in the fact that the Savior of the world, the one who would accomplish Romans 5, is in her stomach. As I was writing my sermon, I was getting text messages from, uh, literally on Wednesday, writing my sermon phone, getting texts from three Brentwood friends in a group chat asking when my 40th birthday is. Um, I responded with TBD. And um, it's in July. And they're all a few years older, so we've already had their celebrations and now they, they're just looking for, we, we had some really, really fun times together celebrating their 40th birthdays. And so we have great memories of that. And so they're looking forward to another friend turning 40. So we're anticipating this celebration. There, there's, there's a reason why videos of birthday parties aren't just videos of one person, person blowing out a single candle. Happy birthday to me. Just doesn't have the same ring. There are many people smiling, delighting, rejoicing. All the more so for one, ones who have received the mercy and the grace of God to come together to celebrate and to rejoice together. Secondly, it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Your joy and rejoicing is empowered by the Holy Spirit. When Mary got there and greeted Elizabeth, John the Baptist leapt in the womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is central here. He is the one producing the joy. He is the one igniting joy in John as well in the womb to, to jump for joy to... He, some have said that this little kick, this jump, was kind of his, his first prepare the way of the Lord, right? Before he was even born. Paul tells the Galatians in chapter 5 that joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit who lives in you, Christian, 
as a result of Romans 5 and what he has accomplished on your behalf is in you. Thirdly, joy is expressed. Joy is expressed. It says that she exclaimed with a loud cry. Why are we so tame? You feel like we're tame? We're tame. We're often frozen. We don't know how to celebrate and rejoice. We are guarded. We protect our responses. I love when I get to see someone who just doesn't care. We all have those people in our lives. They exclaim. It's, it's visible. It's loud when they receive something that delights them. Maybe with sports we express the most. Joy. This is why we do praises of the people. We want to practice exclaiming with a loud cry of joy. So we need to not only express joy and blessing, we need to encourage it in the lives of other Christians. But what was her loud cry? Fourthly, for Mary, it was the Magnificat. It was her praise. That was her, her, her loud shout of joy was praise. It leads to praise. It begins with, my soul magnifies the Lord. It magnifies the source of my joy, is what Mary is saying. We praise the source. This means we take time to pause and give credit where credit is due. We love to debate things. And I remember... Years ago, I heard someone say, I don't pray before meals because I don't want it to become a ritual. I want to be authentic with my prayers. And I'm going, man, why can't you be authentic with your prayers before every meal? That's okay, too. That every time we just pause and go, thank you, Father, for your many graces. I magnify your name. This meal brings me great joy. And to actually mean that prayer. Fifth, it is lasting. Uh, verse 56, it says that she stayed there for three months. That's quite the baby shower. Sometimes we just need to celebrate for longer periods of time. We love start times and end times. Okay, the party starts at 7 p.m. sharp, starting with dinner, gifts at 8.30, dessert and candles at 9, and then done by 10. No celebrating before. There's a hard 10.30 bedtime. Now she's stuck around for three months, celebrating, rejoicing, giving praise to God. I actually love this about some of our good friends, the Molinas. They, they love to keep the party going. They linger. I actually gave them the nickname, the Molina Linger. It's the Lena Linger. I say it every time because they, they start saying goodbye about 8 and they don't leave till about 11. <laughs> and like deep things come up around 10 and I'm like, I thought, I thought we were. But they linger because they love the fellowship and the community that they get to experience with others. It's lasting because Mary has so much to, to rejoice in. It's why she stays with Elizabeth for three months. She knows the Savior of the world is in her. 
She's not going to go be by herself. And so, church, to wrap up this morning, when we, I'm already going late, I'm sorry. When we look at the four themes of hope, peace, love, and joy, let me just say this. We, we can all hope for something. We can, if I say, I want you to hope in something, right? Or hope for something right now. You could, you could do that. We can all go love something. Go love someone right now. We could do that. But peace is tricky because it stands to confront anxiety, and we are all well acquainted with anxiety. And, and joy is tricky because it stands to confront despair, sadness, loneliness. It has a lot going against it. And unless you have Christian joy defined in Romans 5, you will depend on worldly happiness based on circumstances which are so fragile. And they will disappoint you. That, that should bring us joy. <laughs> the cutie coming in. And brothers and sisters, you simply cannot have or know Christian joy unless you have experienced the love of God directed to you found in Christ alone. John Piper calls this experience Christian hedonism, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, when we find our joy and delight in him. C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography, it's called Surprised by Joy. I'm going to end with this. Before he was a Christian, he was always <clears throat> trying to find joy in other things. He, <clears throat> he, would, he would binge on things to, that gave him joy. And at one point, he starts to realize that there's a God behind all of that. And he writes this in his book, The Weight of Glory. I know that the experience of finding joy had never had the kind of importance I once gave it. It was, a, it was valuable only as a pointer to something other and outer. While that other was in doubt, the point naturally loomed large in my thoughts. He who first sees it cries, look, the whole party gathers round and stares. But when we have found the road and we're passing signposts every few miles, we shall not stop and stare. The signposts will encourage us, and we shall be grateful to the authority that set them up and set them there. But we shall not stop and stare, or not much, not on this road. Though their pillars are of silver and their lettering of gold, we would be at Jerusalem. In other words, all the things that we rely on today and think, if I just had that, I would be happy. They're just signposts. We can enjoy them. Some of them are great, and they're gifts, and they're mercies, and they'll encourage us. But don't mistake the signposts for what they're pointing to, which is the city of God, which is God himself. And so, church, this Advent, may our joy be found in the true source, and may we, like Mary, rejoice in it with others, with words. May it lead us to praise, and may the Holy Spirit sustain that joy in our hearts. Let me, let me pray for us. Lord, 
We thank you for the gift of Jesus. God, we would be lost without the sending of your son into the world, still working diligently to, to prove ourselves to you, tired, weary. We have much to rejoice in. The profound yet simple reality that Jesus came into the world to save sinners while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. May we root our joy in that source this Advent season. Pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.